Hey, Anna, remember that time Amelia Earhart was the first and second woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean? that time and historical podcast i'm your host anna webb and i'm your host amanda webb this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out on all of their favorite moments in history and this week we're gonna talk about amelia Earhart. <laughs> it was very dramatic the way you said that. Uh, sure <laughs> i liked it it was thanks there was a flair to it <laughs> she deserves flair she did well she had a lot of it so yeah indeed before we get into it though I believe we should have a drink update. Great. I just grabbed my drink. Um, Excellent. I'm drinking some aloe juice today. Oh, girl. Original flavor with mango. Ooh, um, see. I went to Rite Aid today, and it's the only place where I can find it, so I bought like, a few bottles. Love that for you. It's delicious. I'm drinking water. Mm-hmm. I'm much closer to water today than I usually am. You are. You it's are like, much closer to water. I mean, it's called juice but it's basically water with aloe chunks and some mango flavors (laughs) sure you know it's water adjacent it it's water adjacent yes perfect love it (laughs) (laughs) well shall we jump right into talking about the wonderful woman amelia Earhart? we absolutely should let's do it excellent let's do it So Amelia Mary Earhart is born on July 24th, 1897 in Atchison, Kansas, to Samuel Edwin Santon Earhart and uh, Amelia Amy Earhart. So I'm talking about Amy. I'm talking about her mom. They have the same name, but I'm talking about (laughs) her mom. Got it. Um, She has a younger sister, Grace Muriel Earhart, who is two years younger than her. Uh, Amy Earhart did not want to raise her kids to be, quote, nice little girls. <laughs> um, yes. So she let them play very freely and she let them wear bloomers, which was very yes. scandalous for the time. Oh, my God. Yes. They they lived either with or very close to um, Amy's parents for a lot of her childhood and they did not care for the I was way just they were being say, raised. Were they not happy with that? No, they weren't even happy with her marriage because they didn't think that her husband was going to be very successful. So they just weren't a very oh. happy couple of folks in general. Poor Amy. <laughs> yeah. I like sh- her. Uh, poor Amy has Amy has quite a life. We'll hear about her a fair amount, I think. Excellent. Throughout. She's cool. Um so Amelia and her sister are, you know, quote unquote, tomboys growing up because they're allowed to play, essentially. <laughs> um, they like they to get climb dirty trees. sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. They like to climb trees. They collect bugs. There was like a specific thing that was telling me about like how they collected like bugs and toads, which I love that for them. <laughs> you know, boy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um. This quote I enjoyed. Um, okay. It says, in 1904, with the help of her uncle, Amelia cobbled together a homemade ramp fashioned after a roller coaster she had seen on a trip to St. Louis, and she secured the ramp to the roof of the family tool shed. Oh, boy. 
<laughs> Earhart's well-documented first flight ended <laughs> dramatically. She emerged from the broken wooden box that had served as a sled with a bruised lip, torn dress, and a, quote, sensation of exhilaration. She exclaimed, oh, Pidge, it's just like flying. Pidge was her nickname for her little sister. That is an amazing story for I a woman that. who becomes a pilot. I know, I That's love it so amazing. Much. She just built her own roller coaster and just went flying off the top of the ship. <laughs> sounds so like good. something you would have tried to do when you were a kid. Yup. <laughs> it sounds like something that my friends would have tried to do when I was a kid. And I would have just been like, okay, I guess we're doing this now. Because I wasn't an adventurous kid, but like, you know, I, cl- I climbed things. and Sure. I had sure. adventurous friends yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. So in 1907, her father gets a job in Des Moines, Iowa, and her parents move to Des Moines, and her and her sisters live with their grandparents for a couple of years while they're, like, getting settled there. Uh, During this time, they're homeschooled by, like, a governess and sometimes their mother when she's around. In 1909, the girls join their parents in Des Moines, and Amelia is enrolled in public school for the first time at age 12. So she enters seventh grade the first time she goes to public school. In 1914, after struggling with an alcohol problem for several years, Amelia's father is forced out of his job. It didn't Uh say he was fired. It said he was, like, forced into retirement, but he also wasn't, like, old enough to retire. So, you know, they were just like, don't come back. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. In 1915, her father finds a new job in St. Paul, Missouri. So the family moves there. So there, that's another move for the girls at a very young age. Um, after some problems with his job there and the threat of another unhappy move, Amelia's mother takes her and her sister to live in Chicago with some friends for a little oh, while. Wow. While the dad figures his life out. Because well, fair enough. It was rough. Um, once in Chicago, Amelia starts canvassing the local high schools to find a good science program. (laughs) She wants to find a school where she can find a good science program. Uh, she eventually enrolls in Hyde Park High School, and she was apparently not very happy there, but it was just where she ended up. Hmm. Um, and she graduates in 1916. Uh, this is a detail I enjoyed. Throughout her childhood, she keeps a scrapbook of newspaper clippings of successful women in male-dominated fields. Oh, feminist icon. Yeah. She didn't, like, have, like, one thing she wanted to do when she was a kid, but she wanted to be a woman in a male-dominated field. Like, that was the job she wanted. I know. I love it. Man, this is all just making me sad. I know. (laughs) Because I know know how it ends. How it ends. Well, yeah. Ugh. But she, uh, she's the best. Anyway. <laughs> she is. Uh, she starts college at Ongnots, I believe how, is how you say that? Uh, sure. School in Rydell, Pennsylvania. But she doesn't complete her program there. In 1917, she goes to visit her sister in Toronto while she's on, like, winter break. While she's there... She receives Red Cross training as a nurse's aide, because this is, like, the peak of, of World War One, Right. Um, and she starts working at the Voluntary Aid Detachment at Spadina Military Hospital. So she works for a, as a nurse for a couple of years. 
1918, while she's still working at the hospital, the Spanish flu reaches Toronto. The mm. amount of, like, world events this woman lived through. Oh, man. Yeah. Also, too real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Too real. Uh. In November of that year, she's hospitalized for pneumonia and oh. maxillary sinusitis? Sinusitis. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. She's released about my, two months uh, my later. My sinuses felt like they were swelling up right when you said Hey, it. It just like, get ready. Oh. It's going to get worse. Oh. Uh, she's released about two months later, but she's still suffering from pain and issues with her sinuses. She suffers from painful headaches for about a year after an operation is unsuccessful in relieving the pain. Oof. Um, during this time, she lives with her sister in Northampton, Massachusetts, and she suffers on and off from sinus issues for most of the rest of her life. It's just like, they didn't have any way of dealing with it back then, and whatever they tried didn't work, so it was just a, she got sick once, and then it was just a thing that stuck with her. Well, it was 1918. Yep. Um, this quote describes a very important moment in her life okay it says um at about that time Earhart and a young woman friend which is a great i love that <laughs> phrasing a young woman friend hmm, where have we heard that before <laughs> um <laughs> they visit an airfield uh or an airfare sorry held in conjunction with the canadian national Ex- exhibition in toronto one of the highlights of the day was a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace. The pilot overhead sparted, spotted Earhart and her friend, who were watching from an isolated clearing, and dived at them. <laughs> this is a quote. She says, I am sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. <laughs> Earhart stood her ground as the aircraft came close. And she says, I did not understand at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. What? Yeah, that I know. That is a wild story. I know. First of all, okay. <laughs> a World War One ace pilot sees two women in a field and goes, ha 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 ha. I'm going to go scare them. directly at them so as to scare them. That makes me feel safe. Also, <laughs> she, I'm so, I just, she, and I'm she just overwhelmed. I'm stands overwhelmed. Stands there and, and watches it happen. She doesn't leave. Yes. I love it. And then she, and this is essentially what inspires her love of, of, of flight. <laughs> A near death experience that she did not flee from. What? <laughs> What if that man weren't as good as we thought and hit her with that plane? We just wouldn't have Amelia Earhart. uh, (laughs) Who flies a plane and is like, watch me make these people run from it when I dive directly at them? Who does that? That's an insane (laughs) thing to do. I'm sorry. I'm upset. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway. after that... In 1919, she enrolls in a medical studies program at Columbia University. She's only in the program for about a year before she moves to California to be with her parents who had recently reconnected. Oh, good for them. 
On December 28th, 1920, in Long Island, Amelia and her father go on a 10-minute flight with Frank Hawks. The ride cost her father $10, and I was curious, so I looked up how much that would be today, and it would be about $130 in, like, that today's money. That is a money. lot. Yeah. You could ride in a plane, I think, for less than that now. Like a, like a one-person piloted plane. Oh, for I sure. I you bet. could. Yeah. Maybe not, like, significantly less. But I think that you could. Yeah. Um, after this flight, Amelia is determined to learn how to fly. Well, yeah. So it's like once she's up there, she's like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm doing. I have to, fi- I have to do this. <laughs> For the next few weeks, Amelia works as a photographer truck driver and stenographer for the local telephone company to save money for flying lessons. Uh, After her work and some help from her mother, she manages to save $1,000 for her flying lessons. Wow. Which, again, is like a lot of money in now. And now money. In in now times. In the now times. Let alone back then. It, it, It also is important to note that, like, her grandfather on her mother's side was like a a pretty well-known judge in the area where they lived so they Mm. had like a decent amount of money i was gonna say they had to have at least a little bit because you said she had like a governess and she taught at home so Um, they had to have not been you know yeah they were pretty well off after her grandmother died she put money for uh amy in a trust because she was worried that her that Amelia's father would waste it all because he was an well, alcoholic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So they have like a decent amount of money, but they, their money troubles go like up and down a lot throughout her life. Sure. sure based sure. on just like investments and stuff like that. Um. So, you know, it's a lot of money, but she had some help because she was yeah. decently well off. So she has her first flying lesson on January 3rd, 1921. Her teacher is Anita Snook who is a pioneer pioneer female aviator. She set a lot of the, like, the first time a woman did this in a plane. Like, a lot of them. <laughs> um, I loved this quote. Uh, she chose a leather jacket, but aware that other aviators would be judging her, she slept <laughs> in it for three nights to give that the jacket a worn look. To complete her image transformation, she also cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, About six months later, she buys her first plane, which is nicknamed the Canary because it's yellow. I was going to say, was it yellow? I will note now that I know nothing about planes, so don't ever expect (laughs) anything about models or how they work for me because I don't understand them. No. Even a little bit. I tried very hard. I read a lot. And never once was I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Not at all. No. (laughs) I have no knowledge of that. Yeah. Um, on October 22nd, in 1922, she flies to an altitude of 14,000 feet and sets a world record for female pilots. hey And on May 15th, 1923, she becomes the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. Wow. That's not a lot. Nope. No, it is not. <laughs> in 1923. Yeah. That was not that long ago. No, it was not. Every time we talk about something like that, I just get annoyed at how <laughs> not that long ago it was. Yep. <laughs> um, 
Shortly after this, due to some financial issues with her family, uh, she sells her plane and she buys a car instead. Much more practical. Much more practical. Um, <laughs> I mean, she's not taking the plane to work. No, she is not. And it is not yet her job, so like... <laughs> right, right. Yeah. In early 1924, she is hospitalized for another sinus operation, which is also unsuccessful. Ugh. Uh, also in 1924, her parents finally divorce after wow. a lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, after this, she goes on a cross-country trip with her mother, and they Love end that. up in Boston. Uh, shortly after they get there, she has another sinus operation, which is more successful and more lasting. That's a She's, lot. She still has issues off and on, but it's not as bad anymore after this operation. She returns to Columbia, but she has to quit school uh, because her mother can't afford the tuition costs anymore. Man. In and out of a lot of schools. Yes. Oh, and there were more. Like, she she was like, I'm going to go here. And then she changed her mind and then she went somewhere mm-hmm. else. Or she was, like, preparing to enter, like, this program, but then they ran out of money. Like, she was in and out of She's school a lot. She's just exploring. She, She's just finding. Just, she really was. Just chasing she, her bliss. She she knew that she wanted to be a successful woman, but she hadn't found the field that was, like, gonna be the one right. for her yet. And she fell in love with flying, but she hadn't found a feasible way for that to be it her wasn't, job. It wasn't, like, the easiest thing to become a professional at. Yeah, like. especially when a lot of pr- professional pilots were war pilots, and right. she would not have had that experience. So, and in nineteen twenty, what twenty four or whatever, like becoming a commercial pilot, like that's just not gonna happen. Not a thing yet. Not a thing right. yet. So, yeah. so she hadn't. Not like, a thing yet. And even if it were, she's a female, so she probably wouldn't mm-hmm. get the get that kind of job. Yeah. So she 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 really was doing like a lot of bouncing around because she knew what she wanted, but she hadn't found the path to it yet. Sure, you know. Uh, so she works as a teacher for a little while, and then she works as a social worker at a settlement house in Boston. She continues her interest in flying. She becomes a member of, and she eventually becomes the vice president of the Boston chapter of the American Aeronautical Society. Hmm. Aeronautical is a, such a fun word. I love it. I don't, every time I see it written, I'm like, that's delightful. I like it because it has the word nautical, nautical. in it, which is yeah. for the sea. Sky sea. It's <laughs> more or less what it is. The air ocean. What are you talking about? <laughs> Sky sea. Um, she invests in the Denison Airport, and she flew the first official flight out of the airport in 1927. Wow. Uh, also in 1927, Charles Lindenberg heard flies solo across <laughs> the Atlantic. I was joking that I had heard of it. He's very famous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't pretending. Uh, yes, like, I'm Oh, familiar. that guy. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard that. I'm familiar. Um, after his flight, Amy Guest wants to be the first woman to fly slash be flown across the Atlantic. She decides that the journey would be too dangerous for her, but she wants to sponsor another woman who would be able to take the journey. Hang on, pause. 
too dangerous for her. Why? I think because she was rich and older. I couldn't find okay. a lot. I tried to learn about her, but I couldn't find a lot of information on her. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, because I was like, it's not, it's too dangerous for me, but I'll send another woman. But that yeah. makes more sense if it, she was like older. It, it is possible that that's what it was. But from what I was reading, I think it was just because she was like. But if she wants to do it, you would think. Like, it's not yeah. like she, it's not like she was approached. And then said, mm, too dangerous for me, but I'll send someone else. It, like, it was a desire of hers. So yeah. I guess that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, so Amelia is, like, kind of well-known in the Boston area because she works with all of these, you know, societies and, like, likes to mm-hmm. fly. Um, so she is asked to be the passenger on this journey. She is approached and asked to do it. So on June 17th, 1928, pilot Wilmer Stoltz, (laughs) mechanic Louis Gordon, and Amelia depart from Trespassy Harbor in Newfoundland. There's no no S there. Trepassy. Trepassy. Yeah. (laughs) Harbor in in Newfoundland on a plane called Friendship. Oh, love that. Um, The Friendship Ship. (laughs) Aww. So Amelia is not flying because it's right. not a type of plane that she is familiar with. Um, but she is keeping the flight logs on the oh, journey. Okay. Uh, 20 hours and 40 minutes later, they le- they land near Bury Point in South Wales. Nope, it's not point. <laughs> Port. God almighty. I have been looking at a screen for too long today and I like can't. We're doing can't. great. We're doing great. Um. But this makes Amelia Earhart the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Not to fly herself, but to To be, be in a plane that crossed the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The first woman to cross the Atlantic in the air, <laughs> essentially. In the air ocean. In the air ocean. Or the sky sea, some <laughs> might call it. Oh, we're losing it. Oh, no. Um, After her return, this is what, like, launches her fame right uh (laughs) this i enjoyed uh trading uh on her physical resemblance to Lindbergh, which they do kind of look alike uh who the press had dubbed lucky lindy some newspapers and magazines began referring to her as lady lindy literally just because she flew and she looked like him i don't like that i don't either but the detail was funny to me it is funny i really don't like it (laughs) Uh, she writes a book and begins a lecture tour in 1928. Her publicist, George P. Putnam, works to get her endorsements from several companies. She becomes a promoter for several women's clothing lines, lu- luggage lines, and uh, Lucky Strike cigarettes. Wow. Okay. Yes. Okay. Influencer over yes. here. She's getting Big those time. brand deals. The, by the way, this is what female athletes do because yep. they don't get paid as much as the men yep. and they have to do all these endorsements. Like, that's mm-hmm. just all I could think of. Mm-hmm. And, and she becomes like that. the woman, you know, like every yeah. woman wants to be like Amelia Earhart. And that thing about female athletes, like, that's accurate. This is how she funds the, like, this is how she, yeah. like, is able to kick off her career as a pilot because she makes money for doing all of this so that she can fly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, she becomes an associate editor for Cosmopolitan. Wow. Um, and in that position, she writes about uh, aviation, and she's, like, trying to enhance public uh, perception and, like, it's fun and cool to fly. It's not dangerous. It's not just, you will it's enjoy not just it. for the war. Yeah or, yeah, or for show. Like, it's like a thing. Right. Everybody should fly. Um, and she's also trying to encourage more women to enter the field. Which is, like, her life's mis- mission is to get well, women to fly. It's, she done did it. Yeah. Just not she so works much in the way she wanted, but. So hard on on efforts to get women to fly. Uh, this, I also, every quote I have is, like, I found it interesting or it's too long for me to write out myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I got it. So in this quote, it says, in 1929, Earhart was among the first aviators to promote commercial air travel through the development of a passenger airline service, along with Charles Lindbergh, uh, she represented transcontinental air transport and invested time and money in setting up the first regional shuttle service between New York and Washington, D.C., the Ludington Airline. Hmm. She was also vice president of National Airways, which conducted the flying operations of the Boston, Maine Airways, and several other airlines in the Northeast. Wow. So that's a part of her, like, people should fly places. It's easy right. and fun. Like, she was trying to make commercial air well, they, travel popular Yeah, they were in the feasible. process of making it commercial and accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was, like, one of the projects she was very passionate about. Wow. In August of 1928, she becomes the first woman to fly solo across the North American continent and back. Yes. One of her many firsts. I've listed a few in my notes, but there are so many more than I could possibly ever list because she did a lot of flying. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, During this time, she had been engaged to chemical engineer Samuel Chapman, but she breaks off the engagement in November of 1928. Shortly after that she begins a relationship with her publisher george putman scandalous putnam sorry goodness what um, is happening to you? i don't know <laughs> but they spend a lot of time together so well, like yeah yeah they work together basically mm-hmm. they get married on february 7th 1931 uh this is another quote Earhart referred to her marriage as a partnership with dual yes. control Yes. And a, I love this detail. In a letter written to Put, Putnam and hand-delivered to him on the day of the wedding, she wrote, I want you to understand, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. Yes! I, I may have to keep some place where I can go to be by myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. I love that. I do, The too. confinement of even an attractive cage is so good. Yeah. Yeah. She's the best. Uh, she keeps her own last name. Yes, and she, she sure does. And she being referred to as Mrs. Putnam, which the press does a lot. Yes. Uh, and she often re- refers to Putnam as Mr. Earhart, which is accurate. Because <laughs> he is. <laughs> the pawns. The pawns. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they never have children, but Putnam had two sons from a previous marriage that Amelia has a, a good relationship with. 
1931, she flies at an altitude of 18,415 feet, setting a world altitude record. Yes. Work. <laughs> I remember learning about that, like, when we learned about her in school. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, a handful of firsts for women and also, like, a world record. First for the world. Yeah. yeah. On May 20th, 1932, she takes off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland. She's intending to fly to Paris to simulate Lindenberg's solo transatlantic flight, but due to some technical issues and strong winds, she instead lands just outside of Derry, North Ireland, Northern Ireland. Uh, she becomes the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic. So she is the first woman twice to fly across the Atlantic to be flown and also to fly. Amazing. She receives the distinguished flying cross from Congress. That's an amazing thing to have. I'm sorry. Yeah. The distinguished flying cross. (laughs) Where did they come up with that? (laughs) I hope to God they made that just for her. I know they didn't, but I hope to God they did. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, the cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, oh. which why? She didn't la- land in France. <laughs> she I don't wasn't understand. in France at all. Yeah. Um, and the gold medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. Maybe it was because she intended to land in France. I, or maybe just because she was <laughs> she, she was simulating Lindenberg's flight. But she didn't accomplish it. But maybe they were just, like, prepared to award her for crossing (laughs) the Atlantic. So they they just gave it to her. They didn't give it to her. So they just said, No clue. (laughs) I don't understand. France, I have questions. Do you have the answers? I need to know. Why? (laughs) Um, On January 11th, 1935, she becomes the first aviator to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California. She's just breaking records left and right over here. That's what she does. It is. It's kind of her thing. Um, In November 1934, a fire breaks out in her home in New York while she and her husband are both away. And it, like, destroys a lot of her, like, personal records that we just don't have anymore now. Of course. Ugh. Um, Instead of rebuilding, they decide to move to California where Putnam begins working as the head of the editorial board of Paramount Pictures. Wow. Which I thought was cool. I didn't know that yeah, about him. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, while in California, Amelia begins working with Paul Mance, who was a Hollywood stunt pilot. And ah. like a, a a real professional pilot, because he like, knew well, how to sure. do all that you stuff. You have to know how to fly to do um, the stunts. In September of 1935, they start the Earhart Mance Flying School. It apparently doesn't last very long, but I love that she wanted to start a flying school. Like, that's, yeah, that's very great. her. Also, something that happened, like, in this period that I just didn't write a lot of notes about because it was kind of, like, scattered. But she was also doing lots and lots of work um, trying to get, uh, like, records for women specifically in the field. Like, she wanted... Oh, I see. Like things to be set and recorded about like the achievement of women in flight that was one of her big things that she was working really hard on during this period and also there was another little detail that i don't know why i didn't write down because i found it delightful and i'm gonna talk about it anyway um (laughs) okay she 
there were some, like, race. That's another thing I didn't record a lot. She did a lot of, like, racing across the country and, like, setting records with that kind of thing, too. But she had, like, less success in that than some of these other things that she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this race that, like, wasn't going to allow uh, female pilots. And she was asked to fly a celebrity to the race to open the race. And she was like, uh, no. no, she refused because you're not going to let us race. Why would I do that? Uh, no. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. So in 1936, Amelia begins planning her around the world journey. She would not be the first person to attempt this journey, but it would be the longest at 29,000 miles as she wanted to follow the equator as closely as possible. So other around the world journeys had been shorter because they just went like from way high up there and just like did a little jump around where there's more land (laughs) and it's like easier to stop and refuel. But she wanted to do like a, as as close as possible, actual around the world journey by following the equator. Uh, She's financed by Purdue university where she is a visiting faculty member to build the plane for her journey, which um, the model is like something, something Electra, (laughs) but the plane is usually just called the Electra. So if I'm referring to the Electra from here on out, it's the plane she uses for this journey. Got it. And there's lots of modifications that I don't understand to it (laughs) (laughs) because I don't get the technology, but you know, stuff with radio transmitters and they add like a lot of fuel tanks because she's going to have to make some really long treks. So they need to be able to hold, like, a lot of fuel. So that's right. an important thing that they have to add. Well, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Turns uh, out, plays a pretty big role in the whole thing. So. Yep. So originally, Amelia chooses Harry Manning as her navigator. He was, I think, a naval navigator. Um, mm. But they do a couple of, like, test flights. And Putnam is not happy with his um, performance. Because he, he wants Amelia to be safe. So he's, like, not really happy with how accurate Manning's navigation is. And they well, he's do... so used to the sea. I mean, <laughs> it's not the same as the air sea. It's the air sea, obviously. Yeah. Um, the sky sea. <laughs> and they also have, like, one attempt where he's the navigator. And he just, like, didn't do as well as they were hoping for. So he's, like, left off of the project. Mm. Um, she instead chooses Fred Noonan as her navigator who had experience with both air and sea navigation. So he like made a lot of sense. He could get like that, that real accurate navigation. That's what they wanted. So they begin their second attempt. They did a very short first attempt that, and there was a lot of issues with the plane. So they had to come back and like fix up the plane and then try again. Hmm. And they were originally going to go, um, uh, California towards Hawaii. That would be east to west. But they decided to do west to east instead because the weather and wind had changed in the amount of time Uh, that they were, like, planning the journey. So they have to go the other direction. Same flight pattern, just the other direction. Um, So they begin their second attempt with only Amelia and Noonan on the flight when they leave Oakland, California on June 1st, 1937. It's your birthday. Not in 1937. Not in 1937. But now it is. Now it is. In 1992, it became my birthday. Uh, After making several stops across South America, Africa, India, and Southwest Asia, 
they land in La'e, New Guinea on uh, June 29th. And I think in total there were like 20-some stops, so they had already made many of their stops. Yeah. Uh, They had completed 22,000 miles of their journey and only had about 7,000 left, all of which would cross the Pacific Ocean. The last leg of their journey, they were only going to stop at like a small island and then in Hawaii, and then they would be back in California. So it was like long legs over the ocean, whereas before it had been like shorter stops over the ocean and they'd had more stops for refueling over land. Right. So on July 2nd, 1937, they take off from Lae. The Electra is carrying the most fuel it has had throughout the journey. It's about a thousand pounds of fuel. Um, Which also means that they had to like leave some stuff because they were trying mm-hmm. to lighten their load. so the And it wasn't, the plane is not designed to carry that much to begin with. Like, they made modifications, but, like, she's not made to carry that much fuel. Yeah, and, I mean, they it, it was functional, but it was not its original design, you know? Right, right, right. Exactly. That's what I yeah. was trying to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, their intent was to make their next stop on Howland Island, which was about... Uh, 2,500 miles away. And I couldn't find it for sure, but I'm pretty sure this was the longest nonstop leg of their journey because okay. it was all over the ocean. They had no that other option. That sounds correct mm-hmm. to me. Which is why they had to have that much fuel because there was going to be nowhere no to stop because they were over the ocean. <laughs> uh, during the first few hours of the flight, the station at Lye attempts to warn Amelia of strong headwinds, but she's not able to receive the transmissions for some reasons. If you are interested in the science of this, go to Wikipedia and read the whole section on the radio waves. It's a very oh, yeah. interesting, but I did not understand it and could not convey it properly. But the issues with the radio transmissions are like a huge problem for the remainder of this process. Right. I just am not capable of conveying those to you. <laughs> right. I'm no scientist. I am no scientist. So, yeah. Um, at around 2 p.m., the station at Lai receives a status update from Amelia uh, saying she was flying at about uh, 7,000 feet and that things were going well. About an hour later, she reports that she's flying at 10,000 feet. It was probably to avoid clouds, but that lift in elevation definitely ate up a lot of gas that they weren't initially expecting to have to do. Uh, And a couple hours later, she reports she's moved back down to 7,000 feet. She's just going right along. Uh, The U.S. Coast Guard ship, the Itasca, I believe is how it's said. That's what I've heard. Uh, is waiting off of the coast of Howland Island so that they can use radio transmissions to help guide Amelia to... It's a very small island. It's, like, basically just, like, a little strip of land where they're going to be able to refuel. There's not a lot there. Right, yes. At around 3 a.m. and then also at 5 a.m., the Itasca receives status reports from Amelia They seem perfectly normal, but the Electra is not receiving radio messages from the Itasca. And I was reading that- So she can't hear them, but but they they can can hear hear her. her. Yeah. And the the radio thing, as best as I can describe it, is that the tech that was on the plane was designed to receive transmissions at a different frequency than they were being sent at, or that they were capable of being sent at from the- um, 
from the ship. And it's like they at some point had the technology working, but a fuse broke. And then maybe they had to remove part of it to lighten the load. There's like a lot of stuff there. Uh, okay. But the they just aren't, the two radio waves are not able to communicate what's being, uh-huh. re, you know, received. At around 6 a.m., the Itasca receives a call that Amelia is about 2,000, or sorry, 200 miles away. Um, and they had planned it so she was coming in at uh, sunrise because Noonan was going to be able to use the horizon as a, a navigational, like, point. And it was supposed to help them be able to flan- land there correctly. I see. Okay. Yeah. Another thing I don't totally understand, but it was mentioned more than once. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've heard that before. Like, m- maybe it had something to do with them being able to, like, successfully spot the ship. Or something like or that. Or something yeah. like that. Or where they were supposed to land or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. 6 a.m. She's about 200 miles away. Uh. They attempt to use their radio radio systems to guide the plane to the island, but she's not receiving any signals. Uh, and at this point, the Electra is very quickly burning through its last fuel tank. Gosh. It was, it, I read somewhere that the fuel tank that they had was supposed to last for 24 hours, and she was at about 20-ish at this point, but the strong headwinds and the the altitude climb she had to make may have affected how much fuel she used. Right. So oh, she yeah, was that's right. running she lower than she probably should have when she was approaching. Right. At around 8 a.m., the Itasca receives a very loud message from Amelia, which implies that she was probably pretty close because it was coming in more clearly, uh, but she still can't hear their transmissions. They send her a message in Morse code which they receive, but she, neither her or Noonan, know Morris code. It just, oh, it's frustrating because it really seems like a thing they should have planned for. Well, being able to send Morris code in case something went wrong with, like, The original navigator could read Morse code. Of course he could! But he didn't come. <laughs> it just seems like they should have studied up on it, yeah. like, as a backup plan. Yep. And it, that, that part when I hear that part of the story, always makes me very upset. Because it's like, I just wish she would have planned for that one thing. Because yeah. it could it could have saved her. Mm-hmm. You don't know, but it could have. Yeah. It's just, ugh. Yep. Yep. Uh, her last known transmission is sent at 8.43 a.m. And it says, we are on the line 157,337, the uh, latitude, longitude, right. whatever. Um, we will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6,210 kilocycles weight. And that's the last thing they get from her. Uh, about an hour after this final message is received, uh, after they're waiting and trying to see if she's coming in and trying to get to her, the Itasca begins searching the area northwest of the island where they estimated she was when they last heard from her, like based on her, um her uh latitude longitude right line and uh there was also something about how noonan estimated that that line was supposed to run straight through this island but it was uh, off by like a couple of miles so they were a couple so they were following this line but they they should have been yeah following once once further. they got lost they were following the line because they assumed it would take them to the right. island but it was a little too far out so they couldn't quite see it 
and they could have crashed they if if they were going to crash they could have crashed where they were supposed to land yes yeah but they were a little too far out um wow and uh it was also like cloudy so that they were looking out for them because they they seemed to be very close but it was cloudy out and they couldn't see them right um, yeah, so about an hour after they received the final message, they begin searching the area where they think that she would have been. Over the next about week, uh, several other U.S. ships join the search in the area surrounding the island. Also a couple of Japanese ships, but there was a lot of political stuff going on there. So they probably could have had right. more ships out there, but they got what they got. Couldn't. Yeah. Right. Um, the official search lasted until July 19th, 1937. Uh, at $4 million, the air and sea search by the Navy and Coast Guard was the most costly and intensive in U.S. history to date at that point. Um, I, and I looked it up and that would have been over $18 million today. Wow. Uh, after the official search ends, Putnam begins funding private searches, but, you know, not a lot comes from them. Well, it's so hard, like, in the, in the water, like, even in lakes and rivers and stuff it's, it's already so hard, hard enough. to search yeah it's like man. yeah uh amelia Earhart is declared legally dead on january 5th 1939 uh oh uh, the like amount of time they're supposed to wait until they she was declared legally dead was cut shorter so that putnam could be in charge of her funds so that he could oh, continue sure. searching Sure. Because he needed to, like, legally be able to use that money to continue the search. Yeah. Uh, Amelia, Noonan, and the Electra have never been found to this day. It's really sad. It is really sad. And she was close, too. They would have stopped at Howland, and then they would have refueled and gone to Hawaii, and they would have refueled and and gone to California. So she was two stops away from from finishing her journey. It's so sad. Yeah. And, And... you know, it's sad in general because it's a sad thing to happen, but it also makes you really sad for her because understanding, like, her personality and what mm-hmm. she wanted, like, the fact that she couldn't finish it would probably have been the most upsetting thing to her, honestly. Yeah. Like, what again, let's give ourselves another one of those when we get to, if there is an afterlife, <laughs> when we reach it, who would we want to talk to? I want to talk to her because I want to know what she felt about not being able to finish yeah. the flight. Yeah. And like, it, it also sucks because she was a really, really talented pilot, but there was just nothing she could do. She was just yeah, like well, in, in the, in a lose-lose situation. Like every single bit of what could have helped her just went wrong. Yeah. Things went wrong. And I, I wouldn't say that it was like, she did something wrong. Cause she didn't. And some of the navigation was made, was off as we've learned, but you know, it was, the 1930 like we didn't have incredible navigational technology so you can't blame like you can't blame noonan for getting some of the calculations slightly wrong he had never done this before either you know yeah Yeah. it's just it's really sad i know we're already going pretty long but i uh, of course want to talk about some of the theories about what happened to her because there are many a lot (laughs) yeah okay um, so the most widely held belief about her disappearance is just that the plane ran out of gas somewhere uh, northwest of the island and she crashed into the ocean. The plane sank to the bottom. It was about 18,000 feet 
It's very deep, which is why we haven't found it yet. Like, I mean, yeah, that seems like the most likely. And that it's a big ocean. We don't know exactly where she would have crashed. So we just haven't found the plane. Like that is, that is the most widely held and probably the most likely thing that happened to her. Yeah. Well, you know, Occam's razor is the most likely thing. Yeah. Another popular theory that is, I think, decently likely. It's there's some issues, but it makes a lot of sense. It's Um, possible. Is that the Electra had enough fuel and managed to continue flying about 350 miles southeast from Howland Island and land either landed or crashed into Gardner Island. It is along the 157-337 line that she reported Mm -hmm. flying on. So it seems likely if she was anywhere, that's where they would have landed. Um, If they were just turned around, like... If they found land at all, that would have been it. Yeah. Uh, during the initial search that first, like, week, a plane flying over Gardner Island reported seeing some signs of recent habitation, but after several flyovers, they saw no signs of life and no signs of the Electra. Um, mm-hmm. A ship had wrecked off the coast of that island a few years before in 1929, so it's entirely possible that that was just, like, survivors from that wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, what they were seeing, you know? Right, right. In 1940, a British colonial officer searching the island found a campsite, a sextant box, and a skull and a handful of other bones on the island. Uh, Some people believed that the sextant box may have belonged to Noonan, but another ship had surveyed the island a year before, and it's very likely that they just left the box. Uh, The bones were sent to Fiji and analyzed by Dr. D.W. Hoodless. He determined that the bones likely belonged to a five foot five stocky European man who was approximately forty five years old at the time of death. Amelia was like five seven five eight and was almost forty at the time of her death, so it that would discredit her being those bones being hers and Noonan also did not fit that description. Right. Um. The bones got lost. Love that. Or destroyed or something. So they can't like be re-examined. <laughs> yeah. It happens so much. If you find bones, okay, <laughs> don't lose them. They need to be kept in a safe place. I think that they were God. getting transported off of Fiji to be analyzed by another person. And I think they Not just got lost excuse. somewhere in that process. Not an excuse. <laughs> if you are transporting bones from one location to another, that should be like pretty top priority not to lose those things. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um there have been several attempts to re-examine the the bones just based off of his report of them. Um and some believe that his analysis was incorrect and it's possible that they were her bones. But there's no way of knowing. I mean, we don't have them. Yeah. yeah. How could we know? And, you know, he he didn't have a full skeleton. So there's only so accurate it could have been to start with anyway. Right. Yeah. Right. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGAR, because that's easier to say, uh, (laughs) begins an investigation of the Gardner Island theory. Based on analysis of some photos taken on the island in the years after the disappearance, they believed that there was, like, a landing gear sticking out of the water, like, off the coast of the island. But a lot of people have discredited that as just, like, being a piece of the reef out there. There's been a lot of search out there and they haven't found Hmm. anything, so, you know. Right. Um, During several investigations of the island, Tigar found 
improvised tools and aluminum panel that very closely matches an image of the Electra, like before it had flipped. Like it looks like a piece that is on the plane, mm. but it also just like looks like um, an aluminum panel made in the 30s, you know? Right. Um, an oddly cut piece of clear plexiglass that was the same thickness and curvature of an Electra window, but again, plane windows, ship windows, you know, right. it's possible that that's not what it was. Um, and this I found very interesting. A uh, a size nine cat's paw heel dating from the 1930s, which looks like a piece of footwear from a picture from I've heard about this um, before she flew off. Yeah, so, I've heard about that one. Um, you know, some of those pieces of evidence are very compelling. Other ones have been discredited. There's lots of possibilities of what all of that stuff could and couldn't be because that island wasn't abandoned. There was like a little bit of activity throughout the years. Right. So it's possible that that stuff has just been from. And it's totally possible that another ship or plane from the same time frame crashed there. there. Like you mm-hmm. said, there was a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's totally possible. I mean, oh gosh, it's just, you're right. Some of that's really compelling, but it's also like. It could be anything. Super circumstantial. Yeah. Like there's yeah. nothing super solid yeah. there. And they, they they have also searched the ocean around that island, you know, as best as they can. A lot. Yeah. Um, and, and they've never found the Electra. So, you know, who's to say? Right. Uh, another piece of this theory is that some people believe that uh, Amelia and Noonan were eaten by the giant coconut crabs that live on the island. Yeah, I've heard that one. They're like three feet long. They can break into coconuts and they have been known to eat people. So people think that if they landed there, they ate them and then um, hoarded their bones like little treasures, which is yeah, why they I couldn't mean, find all the bones of that one skeleton. Listen, if if they crashed and died there, that makes sense yep, to me. Yep, yep, because yep, that's yep. what that's the course that nature would take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we just don't know if they if they crashed there. Yeah, or if they died there. Uh, the next two theories are a little less possible. Uh, very interesting, <laughs> but less likely. Uh-huh. Um, some believe that Amelia was secretly a spy for the U.S. government, which is... Oh, God, I love a spy story. You know. Um, and that she was tasked with spying on the, uh, Japanese while she was in the area. Uh, this theory has caused some people to believe that Amelia's plane was either shot down by Japanese forces or that she crash-landed onto the Japanese-occupied Marshall Islands, um, and was taken captive by the Japanese government after she crashed. Uh, some of the native Marshall Islanders have claimed that they saw the Electra crash on their islands, but those have never been proven. Um, others have claimed that they witnessed Amelia and Noonan be executed by the Japanese uh, government, which is wild. <laughs> it just seems a little yeah conspiratorial to me. Yes. And also, the Marshall Islands were about, they were also sort of on that line that she would have been traveling, but they were like 800 miles away, so it was yeah. very unlikely that she the made it. The plane probably wouldn't have made it with, with the amount of gas that she had. Right. Um, <laughs> this is something. In 2017, <laughs> a History Channel documentary, uh, Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, proposed that a photograph in the National Archives of... Jollit Adel? I don't know. In the Marshall Islands was actually a picture of Earhart and Noonan. There was like a group of people and there was a guy that looked like Noonan and then a woman with her back turned who had the same like features as Amelia. 
Um, so classic conspiracy but this was discredited because some bloggers found the original source of the photo in a Japanese travel guide that had been published in 1935. So the picture had been taken before she disappeared. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, come on, History Channel. You know better than you that. You know better. Come on. Um, some believe that Amelia somehow survived, like, however the that happened, that she survived and uh, moved to New Jersey, changed her name, remarried, and became Irene Bolum. The real Irene Bolum said no and no. sued the author who originated that theory. She was like, I'm not Amelia Earhart. So I don't I don't understand this theory that Me she if she had lived that that she would move somewhere and like change her name. She I liked don't get being that. famous. Like she would well, not <laughs> And more than that, she was so about the accomp like like promoting the accomplishments of women, particularly yeah. in this field, Why she would, would have she tried have? again. Yeah, she would oh, have tried yeah. again. She, you know, she wouldn't have just given up and she wasn't that. She wasn't that old. She, she was thirty nine. It wasn't like she was right. like old and tired of doing it. Like she was young and like ready to keep doing it. Um, and this was only her second attempt. She would have attempted more. Yeah. Also, they don't look that much alike. Like a no. little bit, but not enough to claim <laughs> <No>. it. Like <laughs> Irene said, mm, no. <laughs> I, I love that she went, no, and she sued no. the guy. <laughs> uh, Good for Irene. Um, there are also, of course, theories that are related, related to, like, the Bermuda's Triangle, oh. alien abductions, etc., etc. All very fun, but none of which make any sense. <laughs> no, they didn't happen. Uh, they didn't happen. Sorry. Yeah. Happen. So I think the most likely is that she crashed, um... But also decently likely is that she landed on a piece of land and it was just like totally to possible her. she oh, landed yeah. on that island yeah. and and died there. But also, I don't know, I feel like because they searched that area. They flew over that they area. They did search that area not long after the crash. But their efforts were very different to what we have today, so they just yes. weren't as capable of finding things like like we are That's now. true, but it wasn't that long after the crash. So you would think that if she were on that island and saw a plane flying overhead, she would have sent up a smoke signal if she could, or done something to, mm-hmm. s- to signify that she was there. Yeah. It, I, it doesn't totally make sense to me. Again, physically possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Plausible, even, that, that that happened to her. I just don't think it's the most likely Oh, no. It's not thing. the most likely. But it's the theory that I like because I would have liked for her to have survived a little longer, I guess. But, you know. More than anything, I just would like to know what happened. What happened to her. Yeah. You know. Um, And then this is just one last little detail that I liked. Um, This, there were a couple of memorial flights for her uh, Mm. along the same path after she died. um, And this one I liked. In 1967, Anne Daring Hot Green Pellegrino and a crew of three flew a similar aircraft, it was another Electra, um, to complete a world flight that closely mirrored Earhart's flight plan. On the 30th anniversary of her disappearance, Pellegrino dropped a wreath in Earhart's honor over tiny Howland Island and returned to Oakland, completing the 28,000 mile commemorative flight on July 7th, 1967. Aww, that's yeah. 
Man, that was a sad one. It was a sad one because I but love her. But she's amazing. She is the she coolest is person. She's always been one of my favorite, like, feminists. Yeah, heroes. me too. I just think she's, she's amazing. Cool. And she did so, like, I just am obsessed with the fact that she decided very young that she just wanted to be a woman who did things that men did. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was her goal in life. What and then she became be? I don't know. An incredible Anything that pilot. crosses my path. Yeah. yeah. I <laughs> love that for her. Yeah, she's a, she's extremely cool. Should we do a quick uh, Google autofill? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do, was Amelia Earhart? Uh, found, ever found, planes ever found. <laughs> no, no. No to all. We have not found Why are you asking Google? Do, don't you think we would have had like a big old story if any of that was ever found? It would be like finding out who Jack the Ripper is. Like yeah. People would, everyone would know if that were the case. Yeah. Uh, married and ever married are both on here. Yes, she was married. Yes. Um, uh, was Amelia Earhart a nurse? She was for a few years. This, this has blind and deaf, which I don't know why. I've never heard that about her. Two separate questions? Yeah. Or one question? I was going to say, are they getting her confused with Helen Keller? Seriously, no, no, no. are they? Yeah, no, just was she blind? Was she deaf? Blind or deaf? Why? I, I don't know. I have no idea. Why? Um, and then this one says, was Amelia Earhart a Christian? Oh, my God. I don't know. Who cares? I don't know, I don't care. Who cares? Uh, how, how many people are Googling this? I don't know. I, I love that the, the idea that there is, like, a group of people in the world, either together or apart, that just need to know. I must know, know if she's Christian. So much so that Google was like, is this what you were wondering about Amelia <laughs> Um, One of the top asked questions. Uh, and then is Amelia Earhart um, found, plain found, terrible oh grammar, still no. Um, <laughs> married, also, still yes. Um, a hero, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think she absolutely is. She's one of my heroes. I agree. Um, white, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there are pictures of her, so... Is Amelia Earhart's sister still alive? I actually don't know the oh, answer to that. That's a good question. Hey, Google, good question. Probably not, I would guess, just because she would be quite old. I'm going to find out. Is Amelia Earhart a scientist? No, but she knew a lot about planes, which I think is like, gives her some credit, you know? Pretty similar. Yeah. Her sister, her sister died in 1998. Okay. All right. So she lived a good long life. I 18 think... days before you were born. Yeah. I think her, at least one of her stepsons is is still alive because he was referred to a lot in the like re- more recent search efforts. So I think that he's still alive. Um, and then we'll, Interesting. we'll end on this one. I don't. Is Amelia Earhart a demigod? <laughs> what? Wait, what? That took a turn. That took a very big turn. Also, both of her stepsons oh. are dead, but the one, but the most recent death was in 2013. It's so the the younger one died in 2013. It's a FYI. reference to Percy Jackson. Oh, because okay. it, they made her a um, a demigod of Zeus. Without so context, she, yeah. that is yeah way I out was of like, field. What? <laughs> it's a it's a Percy Jackson thing, everyone. Oh my god. One of her stepsons died the year I was born. Whoa. Wild. 
And then the other one, 2013. So that was... So it was pretty recent. That's what I thought. Because yeah. I, I, in some of the more recent um, search efforts, he was uh, referenced. Sure. That's Amelia. Oh, Amelia. That's a good one. Thanks. I, I really her. enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I, okay. I don't know what I'm doing. <sighs> I'm so tired. <laughs> in general, I, but also next week. I started, I started that sentence and then I was like, where is it going? I don't know. <laughs> I just... I had a Michael Scott moment. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I'll just start talking mm-hmm. and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, that's who I'm talking to. If you have suggestions for other topics you want us to talk about, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, anything else, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at rttpod. Uh, We're also on Facebook. Just search the name of the podcast. And if you want to send us a rating, review, wherever you listen to this podcast, that would be great. Um, And if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. All right. Well, no chosen talkit for next week, which is typical for us. Yeah, don't know what it's going to be. Have not even considered it. Awesome. But I'll think of something. Well. I always do. (laughs) Well, until that next time. Remember that time.